God, we thank You. You are amazing and kind. And Your grace is, is new every day. Lord, we are so privileged to be called Your children, children of the Most High. The ability to be able to come and, and to meet this midweek, um, to study Your Word. Lord, as we take a look at Hebrews 5 tonight, and, and Lord Jesus, how You are the great High Priest. And, and our responsibility to grow in faith and, and to learn more about you. Lord, help us to, to walk that path. Father, I pray right now that we would just pause this midweek. Reflect on you. Realize that we are in the presence of a holy God. And we have the privilege of entering into your throne room of grace, Lord Jesus. Through Jesus Christ's blood, his sacrifice. Father, we would ask that you would help us remove the distractions and hindrances that would keep us from really fully embracing all that you have for us tonight and being transformed by your word. Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.
for good for the Lamb that conquered death. And the dead was from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe. For the souls of all who come to the Father are restored. And the church of Christ was born, and the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. By His blood and in His name, in His freedom I am free. For the love of Jesus Christ, who has resurrected me. Let today be the day 
for you, God. And we just, this world just needs more of you right now, God. We need to turn to you in every decision, God. We need to put you at the center. And God, just be with us tonight and open our eyes and our ears and just help us to absorb the words that you put on the page to guide us, to make us hungry for you, God. Just be with Pastor Kerry as he opens everybody's heart. In Jesus' name, God. Amen. Well, if you would open up your Bibles to Hebrews, we're actually going to backtrack a little bit to Hebrews 4, 14, and then kind of move forward with that. A couple of things that uh, I want to encourage you on. Sunday, we will be starting a new sermon series. For six weeks, we're going to be doing a sermon series called Truth Matters. Is truth important? Yeah, especially in the world that that we find ourselves in where truth is being challenged. And so we're going to do a six-week series on entitled Truth Matters and really taking a look at at truth. And and this Sunday we're going to take a look at the nature of truth. Where does truth come from? What is actually true? Also, just as a reminder too, pay attention to your emails. We are working out our Israel trip and trying to figure out uh, which way we're going to go. Things are not settling down like we would like. And so we're looking at um, some options with that. But tonight we're going to be taking a look at and, and venturing into a, a, a period in the book of Hebrews that's going to cover Melchizedek. Now, what is it about people that when you have something really good, like really good, that causes you to turn back to something that is not so good. It's like something that is just really incredible and you have that, that, just that great event happening, that great relationship happening, and then you find yourself turning back and going back to something that you had done or something that was part of your life, that old comfortable condition or being within that 
you know, in, in the addiction community, we call that relapsing, when you go back kind of to the old ways or the old standard. What is it about us that does that? Well, much of it has to do with our sinful nature. The other part of it has to do with immaturity within that. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jews that are Christians that have come to faith, but they're in danger of relapsing back to Judaism and the style of Judaism. I have a friend that, um, that for years was walking with Christ and doing a great job in his, in his journey, missionary, and all of these things, and then went back to an old traditional liturgical religion that no longer challenged him spiritually. Why? More comfortable. Less work. Didn't require really giving yourself out and maturing. It was much easier and I can tell you this, if you're looking for the easy life, you're not going to end up in the godly life. You, if you're looking for the path of least resistance, you're not going to really mature as a Christ follower and mature in your faith. We are striving and, and working in our faith and in growing. And one of the things that the writer is bringing out is the conflict between these Jewish Christians that are wanting to fall back into Judaism the old liturgical religious system and, and sacrificial system under the old high priest within that, when they have the best high priest that they ever could have in Jesus Christ. Now, why would you, why would you abandon that? And so within this section, the writer makes three different points. One of the things that he's going he's gonna to bring out is that as believers, as Christ followers, we have the perfect high priest. Now, again, you kind of have to put on your... your thinking cap to think like a Jew to be able to work through all the implications of this within this and understanding that Jesus is that perfect high priest. Why? Well, one of the things is up until now, all the Jews at this time had human high priests with all the human limitations within that. And it was and so within that, it was a much more comfortable religious system. Why did they like it? Well, because their religion was, guess what? Predictable. Predictable. We like predictable. We like to be comfortable with this. And one of the things that we're going to see is why Jesus is a better high priest or better spiritual leader than any human being. One of the reasons that, that we'll see is that spiritual leaders up until this point were all taken from the nation of Israel. They were all failed human beings. It's going to challenge some of our presupposition on who we should follow and who should be in charge of our lives. The Aaronic priesthood would always put forth who the high priest would be. Then there would be some limitations within that. And so the writer does something amazing. What the writer does is he contrasts the Jewish Aaronic high priest, and, and, and again, we're going to unpack it, and, uh, against a previous high priest named Melchizedek. Now, when you get into some study and some churches, everybody gets all weirded out about Melchizedek and who was Melchizedek and all that. We're going to unpack that a little bit more in chapter 7 um, within this. But, and so you definitely got to, got to come back next week as we, as we kind of work through 
this passage in our journey. But Melchizedek was the king of Salem, he was, which is Jerusalem. He was both a king and a priest, something that the Aaronic priesthood was not. They were priests only. The writer is going to quote out of Psalm 110.4, where he says this, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, you're a perfect priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. God in his word establishes the pattern of the priesthood of Melchizedek as being superior to the Aaronic priesthood within that. Anything that is man-made and the origin of that. And so he's going to refer to Psalm 2-7. He's going to quote out of that. Psalm 110-4 within this. And all of these things. He's also going to say, why is he a better priest? What can he do that the current priesthood can't do? And, and that's always one of the challenges in, in following Christ. What does being a born-again Christ follower give to me or do for me that my religion doesn't do. Well, understand this. Religion is always man's attempt to get to God. Religion is man-made. God wishes to have an, a, a relationship with you, and he established a relationship. And relationship with God is always from God to us, not us to God. You all know the account of the Tower of Babel, right? When they tried to build a tower up into heaven, how'd that work for them? Well, now we've got all these stinking foreign languages we've got to learn. They, they really messed it up. We could have all been speaking, this, but now when I go to Israel or we go some other place, now i got this foreign language. Why? Because you messed it up. And that's the problem is we mess it up. One of the things, though, about this high priest is he's not so much the God most high, but he's also the God most high. This high priest, Jesus, has experienced everything as we're going to see everything that we've been through. He's relatable within that. He's not, he's not a high priest that, that sits in an ivory tower and dictates. Something else is the preeminence of the priesthood within that. That within this, these, these Jews were wanting to go back against something that was comfortable. And the writer uses pronouns, um, the you and the they and the we and the beloved, because he distinguishes the difference between the Christians that are really following after Christ and the Jews that have abandoned their faith. This is a time when pronouns do matter. Because in Bible study, it allows us to understand who the, who the audience is within these things. The danger, though, as we're going to unpack in a little bit, is the, the immaturity or the following falling away and this idea of spiritual dullness where they abandon a new covenant and go back to an old covenant. If you were married, and how would you feel in this marriage, and you've been married fairly recently, 5, 10 years, 15 years, and then one day your wife or your husband said to you, you know what, this marriage is too much work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you and I'm going to go back to my old flame. How would that make you feel? It'd be a gut punch, wouldn't it? I spoke with a guy, I was counseling with a guy today who told me that he came home from a business trip to find his house empty because his wife had packed everything up while he was gone and just left. And just abandoned him. Imagine how God feels after he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness 
and for us to, uh, to uh, abandon him, to go back to some kind of old relationship within this. And leaving back to the old things that we were supposed to be delivered from. I would imagine it would be the same way that God would feel when he delivers an addict from, from alcohol or from drugs and says, look it, I want to deliver you. I want to, I want to fill you with my spirit. I want to give you this new life. And you're walking with God and doing really good and then you relapse. And you go back to the very thing that God had delivered you from. Now God doesn't abandon you. But he does what the author is doing here, as we're going to read. He pleads, don't go back. Don't go back to that thing that is, that is not good for you within this. The third element of, that we're going to see as we unpack this, as I said earlier, is the preeminence of the priesthood of Melchizedek within this and why it was first. And there were some certain things that, that happened with Melchizedek and Abraham that we'll unpack that tells us why it was before the Aaronic priesthood. So we're going to jump right into this as we journey through. We are going to back up a little bit to chapter 4, beginning with verses 14 to 16, by way of review, because we were off last week. And I want to refresh your memory, because this is really where this uh, pericope section begins. It says this in 14 to 16, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest... It was passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in times of need. One of the things that he says here is since we have this high priest that God's given us, he says literally we have this. It's in our possession. Who has passed through the heavens to earth to be with us. One of the things is the proximity. God says, I will come to you in the form of Jesus. God in the flesh. I will come to you and I will, I will experience everything that you've been through. This, the human high priests, they were temporal. They were limited within what they could do and, and what they could experience. They're sinners, just like the people that they represent. And so within that, there was a limitation that was in this. But Jesus is in the eternal and came to earth, born of a virgin. We, we just studied that. In fact, earlier in the, chapter, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people, for since he himself was tempted in that which we, he has suffered, he is able to come and aid those who are tempted." Now, as I said a couple weeks ago, you say, well, how does Jesus know what I've gone through? If you narrow down every temptation that is thrown at you, it all boils down to one thing. Obey God or disobey God. It all boils down. And so it's, it, it's the temptation of obedience or disobedience. So when you think about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, what did Satan say to him? Took him out and he says, hey, are you hungry? See these stones? Turn him to bread. And how did Jesus counteract that temptation? With the word of God. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds of the mouth of God. So he counteracted that. So the temptation 
was to disobey the Father and become self-centered, self-serving within that. Then there was the temptation to worship the devil. Then there was the temptation to test God within that. How else was he tempted? Do you remember the garden? Was there a temptation there? As he sat and he, he sweated drops of, of blood from his forehead and the stress and all of these things. Father, if there's any other way, nevertheless, what? Not my will, but your will be done. Tempted to back out, but he obeyed all the way to a cross death within that. In every way he was tempted. Was he fully human? Absolutely. And in that, as being fully human, would there be a temptation for lust or deceit or any of these other things? For sure. But it all comes down, are you going to obey the, the commandments? Are you going to obey the law? Or are you going to serve yourself? So in every way, Jesus was tempted, yet without sin within this. And so we see how this all comes together within this, this, this idea of resisting the temptation. So when you go to God and you say, God, you don't know what I'm going through. Jesus, you don't know my situation. You don't know what it's like to be stressed out. <laughs> How do you think that's going to fly with him? Yeah, I do, maybe a little bit. Try taking on all the punishment for the sins of the world. Would that cause a little bit of stress? Yeah. When we, when we think about all of this, in every way, he knows what we're going through. That's why he could be a perfect high priest and represent us before God. Because before the throne of grace, he says, look, at, I know what they're going through, Dad. I know what they're going through. And they need your mercy. And they need your grace. And I'm going to advocate for Kerry because he's a knucklehead. In every way, he's one that advocates for us. He's the mediator, the arbitrator between God and man. Do you know the one thing, the one person that stands between a holy God and a sinner that's saved by grace is Jesus? Because it's his grace that he's offered to us. As we're going to take a look at it at the table here in a little bit. We're going to celebrate that. What does that provide? Something huge. Confidence. Confidence. Can I go to Jesus and be transparent before him? Yes. How? He's holy. Yes. But he also walked on this earth as human. And I can go to him in my prayer life. I can go to him and I can cry out and be very transparent. And he's not going to condemn me. He is not going to, to judge me. Romans 8 one says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can go before him in, with great confidence. I know people that have been feeling so guilty for things that they've done ashamed for their past and all of these other things. And I can tell you as a Christ follower, there is no reason to be ashamed before Jesus Christ. There is no reason because all that shame and guilt was done away with at the cross. And you can come boldly 
before him. Confess those sins, not from a standpoint of knowing that you're going to get judged, but knowing that it's going to be there. In fact, again, in, in Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus knows. For the law of the spirit of life is where? In Christ Jesus. And he sets you free from the law of sin and death. I can have full confidence when I go to Jesus, my high priest, who's advocating for me and says, look, you're accepted and loved within this. The problem with an earthly high priest that is also a sinner, could he receive a person like that without any hit of condemnation? No. No. Because we're sinners, do we, by our own nature, have a tendency to judge other people? Sure. But, but Jesus doesn't do that. So our confession is pure before him within this. And then in verse 15, it says we have this high priest who can sympathize. It was a requirement for the high priest to be able to sympathize and advocate for his people. And he would know these weaknesses. And then that allows us to be able to draw near to him to this mercy seat. How many people could go into, in the, in the Old Testament, at the temple, you had, you had the, the place of sacrifice out in the courtyard, and then you had the holy place, and then they had the holy of holies. How many people could go into the holy of holies? One. I couldn't go in, you couldn't go in, no Jew could go in. Only one. And how often? Once a year. And what would he have to do in order to qualify to go in? First, he'd have to offer a sacrifice for himself. And then he could offer a sacrifice for everybody that he represents. Once a year. How often? Every year. Because it would only be a temporary covering. And those of you that have studied this, within the hymn of the robe of the priest was sewn pomegranate bells. Why? Because if the bells were ringing, he was still alive. And there was a rope tied around his ankle. Now, can you imagine having that job? Going in and, and, and you're shaking and you're ringing your bells. Because if the bells stop ringing, they're going to start yanking on that rope. And why would he die suddenly in the Holy of Holies? Because if his sacrifice that he offered for himself was not acceptable before God, if it was not pure, if his heart was not pure, he would drop dead before the mercy seat of God. Then they'd rope him out, yard him out, and then they'd get the number two guy and say, well, you're up next. <laughs> but we have a high priest that is better. Why? Because Jesus is holy and he never had to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was holy. And as Jesus is our high priest, how often can he go before the presence of his Father? All the time. How often can he, can he stand before God on my behalf? Every time I pray. James 4.8 says this, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a great promise. Draw near to God. Who takes the initiative? We do. And the promise? He will draw near to us. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Within this. So we can draw near to God, approach this grace. Do you realize that you have access to the throne of grace 24-7? 24-7. 
Does God ever get tired of hearing from you? No. No. 24-7, you have access to God. He's not up there going, okay, it's Carrie again. And he's praying the same prayer again. (sighs) Do I really have to listen to him? Michael, will you step in for a minute? No. No. He's there. Why? Because God's grace, God's abundant grace. Can you ever wear out the grace of God? No. Paul would say this to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 2, 12 to 13. Remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been brought near because of your works, No. Because of your religion? No. Because you look good? No. Because of the blood of Christ. Has paved that pathway. We have a perfect high priest that has opened the door to the Holy of Holies for us. His name is Jesus. Why would you ever want to go back to a religious system where your sins can only be atoned for once a year... And you'd have to repeat it time and time again. That would be foolishness, wouldn't it? Why would you leave that? Well, because it's comfortable. It's easy. It's predictable. It's also dead. And dead religion is not what God has has called us to. He's called us to a living relationship. So in chapter 5, he continues this Throne of grace, and he continues, and he says, For every high priest, what? That has opened that doorway to grace, has taken from a man, is appointed on behalf of men, in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. How many of you all are here are ignorant and misguided? Raise your hand. Yeah, you can do it. That's me. I'm ignorant. I'm misguided. And I love the fact that the text says that Jesus will deal gently with me. That's a good thing. In order to offer both sacrifices, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself is also beset with weakness, and because of it he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, also for himself. And with no one who takes honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even to Aaron. So there was a high priest that had to be sympathetic to those people that were there, that would come to him, and divinely appointed. One of the characteristics for the high priest is that he had to be human. You ever wonder why Jesus had to be born a woman, besides of the atonement factor? It's the relatability. God intended Jesus to be able to relate to you. Did Jesus ever get tired? Did Jesus ever get hangry? I'm sure he did. Did he ever get frustrated with his disciples? Did he ever get angry at the religious system? Yes. We see that time and time again. Did he ever judge hypocrisy? Absolutely. 
we look at all of those attributes, and they're righteous attributes in the fact that he acted righteously without sin. But he knows what it's like to be in those conditions of being frustrated, being hungry, being tired, and all of these things. The high priest had to come from the line of Aaron, had to be human, and had to come from the nation of Israel. We know that Jesus' priesthood was better because he had to come from Israel, had to be human, but he comes from the line of David, royalty within this, which makes him better. The priest's job was to offer gifts of worship and sacrifice to God. Jesus presented himself as a sacrifice to his father. He died on our behalf. And he calls for us to do that too as an act of worship. Question. It's not meant to guilt you at all. When was the last time that you can think that you offered yourself as a sacrifice before God? Where you actually said, God, I am doing this as an act of worship unto you. That's an intentional action of worship. Where, where, where you say, look at God, I want to do this, whatever this is, as an act of worship. To live sacrificially. To live missionally. What does a sacrifice of worship look like? Helping those that are in need. When the Holy Spirit moves on your heart. You ever had that? Where God gives you that little gentle nudge and says, I want you to go help this person. And you, and you act upon that. You say, well, it's going to inconvenience me. That's sacrificially. That's saying, it doesn't matter about me, it matters about the other. Within this. Jesus is, is fully qualified to be the high priest because he, he sacrificially gave his life and is ordained by the Father. Not self-appointed. The Father said to do this. If we look at Exodus chapter 28.1, in the original Aaronic priesthood, it says, Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons from him, among the sons of Israel, minister to as priest to me, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, Ithmar, Aaron's sons. Do you realize that God called Jesus to go and be our high priest? Furthermore, God calls you into ministry and to serve. We think about the priesthood and you say, well, if the priesthood is so good, then what happened to it? Well, when you study history a little bit, the priesthood became very corrupt under a guy by name Antiochus in 4th B.C. Antiochus, from within that time, corrupted the priesthood and the priesthood became political. Now, can we think of a religious system where the priesthood has become political, politicized? Absolutely. Every, every religious system that man ever created, the priesthood becomes politicized. And it doesn't matter if it's in Catholic or Protestant. Every religious system where the spiritual leader is self-appointed or appointed by people has the great potential of being politicized and corrupted. So how do you have a perfect priesthood or perfect spiritual leadership? It's a calling of God. I can tell you this. I didn't want to be a pastor. I, I, I got saved in... 1981 at Calvary Costa Mesa under Chuck Smith. And I remember as God woke me up, forgave me of my sins, gave me great grace. 
I remember praying to God and saying, God, I'll do anything you want, but I don't want to be a pastor. Be careful what you tell God you won't do. And so it's like, all right. And I was perfectly content. I was, I was going to school to be a firefighter and, and I was working in a print shop. And, and I thought, well, you know, I need to serve the Lord somewhere. So I started working with kids. And, and I had a really bad childhood. And, and I remember after working with some kids and, and I thought, okay, God, this is, this is kind of cool. I'm working with kids. And, and if I can help kids not go through the same stuff that I went through as a child, then God, I want to do that. But don't make me be a pastor. Don't make me be a teacher. I hate getting up in front of people and talking. Be careful what you tell God you won't do. I had one job. It was Pioneer Clubs. It was at Calvary Downey. I had one job. It was Pioneer Boys. So I had third and fourth grade boys. My job for the teacher was to take the kids and throw them around the room. That was back when WWF wrestling was really cool and the kids were all into it. And I had ten minutes with those kids and I was the wrestling mat. And we were throwing kids and just having a good time. They were all tuckered out by the time they got done and then they could sit down. They burned all their energy and the guy could teach. That was my ministry, throwing kids. It was cool. And then one, guy, one time the guy didn't show up to teach and I went, uh-oh. <laughs> now we got a problem. So I started picking up the book, and I'm reading out of the book. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. Did that for a little bit, and then I was asked to, to, to join another church plant in Whittier and started teaching Sunday school with the kids, and that was cool, and, and, and that was good. And then the pastor said, I want you to come on and be the children's and youth pastor in this new church plant. I said, no. He said, yes, you've got to do this. I said, no. <laughs> About six months later, after nagging me, and the Holy Spirit nagging me, I finally said yes. And went on staff and was ordained in 1988. I've been pastoring since then. And I've had the opportunity and the privilege to be able to fulfill a calling. And, and the interesting thing is, it doesn't matter what you try to do. When God's called you, you can't leave it. It's like Jeremiah, you cannot not share the gospel. That which transforms. That's the difference of a calling and self-promotion. When the priesthood and spiritual leader is based on self-promotion, he is an inadequate representative before the throne of God. When a spiritual leader is called by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit, then they are adequate for that work. And who is more adequate than God himself who sent his son and said, I call you to go be the high priest for all those that would believe within this. And so for the Jews that were in danger of going back, the writer is saying, what are you doing? You've got this guy, Jesus, who is holy God, fully human, lives sacrificially, and is there for you all the time, and you're leaving him to go back to an empty, man-made, self-appointed religious system where every time the high priest dies, another guy has to be picked out to fill his shoes. And it's corrupt. Jesus is a better high priest because he is fully qualified. I doubt anyone in this room would argue with that. 
But why is he fully qualified? What makes him fully qualified? Because Jesus is the only begotten of God. That word only begotten is monogenous. It means one of a kind, unique. There's no one like him within this. Unlike that human priest, he is uniquely qualified to stand before holy God and plead your case. To declare you innocent. The other amazing thing is this. That when Jesus declares you innocent and free, there is no argument from Holy God. There is no, well, I don't agree with you, Jesus. Why? Because the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sin and unrighteousness and continues to cleanse us from those things. And the Father accepted that sacrifice within this. These religious leaders would question Jesus' qualifications. John chapter 8, 53, 54 says this, Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, quote, I am, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom say he is our God. In other words, Jesus says, I'm not the one promoting myself. My father does. How do we know that twice in Jesus' ministry on earth, his time on earth? The Father said, from heaven, this is my what? Beloved Son, in whom I am what? Well pleased. The Father qualifies him. What God says about his Son is the most important thing. What Jesus says about you is the most important thing. And Jesus says, you are my child. You are forgiven within this. And so within this... They're quoting Psalm 27. This is my son, the one that is is there for me. You are my son, verse 5, begotten, and I have begotten you within this. Christ didn't glorify himself. Verse 6, and he says another in another passage, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Within this. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. One of the challenges is this. Is Jesus qualified to stand before holy God? People question that. Yes, he is. He is the son of God. He is the perfect sacrifice. Peter, in his sermon, in Acts chapter 2.36, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This is Jesus whom you crucified. Do you know, as men, as we study the book of Revelations, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, who stands to judge heaven and earth? Jesus. He's qualified. He paid the price He stands qualified and God declares him qualified within this. It makes him better. Now again, we come back to this concept of the Aaronic priesthood versus the Melchizedek priesthood. Which came first? In study of Scripture, when you study the Bible, you need to study it and follow what's called the law of first mention. In other words, the law of first mention says whatever something is mentioned or established first gives preference and precedence over everything that follows after that. Do you follow? So whenever it's mentioned first, the law of first mention, that sets the standard for everything afterwards. What came first? A priesthood of Melchizedek or a priesthood of Aaron? 
Melchizedek came first. That means it's a superior priesthood within that. It was first in time, first in kind. And again, as we quoted out of Psalm 104 or 1104, you are there forever out of the order of Melchizedek. It predates the Aaronic priesthood when? Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. It says that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and now he was a priest of God most high. When did that happen? It happened when the, when the, in the valley of the kings, the king of Sodom and, and the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, all gathered together. They find Abraham, and within that, there is a sacrifice that is brought out in this bread and wine. Melchizedek bringing bread and wine. Does that sound familiar? Law first mention. What is he offering? Bread and wine. What are we going to celebrate in a little bit? Communion. What does Jesus use as elements? What does he bring forth at the Last Supper? He brings forth what? Bread and wine. So we have what's called inclusio, a bracketing. He is the king priest. And he introduces elements that represent him as bread and wine. Which we see again at the Last Supper. Which we'll see again at the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 19. Bread and wine. Is Melchizedek Jesus? I believe so. We'll unpack it a little bit more when we get to chapter 7. But it's called a Christophany. A pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus within this. How do we know that? little teaser. Abraham worships him. Abraham offers tithes to him. Abraham was a God-fearer and would never do that to anybody other than God within that. But again, we'll unpack that later within this. One of the things that's important is this. When you have the perfect, why would you look for anyone else? When you have the perfect, why look for anyone else? You do it because... It becomes easier. It's, it, it becomes more comfortable. It becomes self-centered. You lose your focus within that. Jesus fulfills all the roles of king and priest. And finally, for the Jews, they have their king priest. Do you realize that Israel had been looking for a king priest ever since the promise of God? And he finally came and they blew it. They rejected him. He knows that, that he is there. And one of the things is he knows our heart. And again, Mark 14, 33, 36. And I'm going to hammer it because we have to understand the relatability of Jesus as our king priest. It says this in Mark 10, or Mark 14, 33, 36. He took Peter with him, James and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray and said, if it were possible that this hour might pass them. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Have you ever been in a place where you've been so under pressure that, as the text says, you were grieved to death? Where you got to that place where you wished death would come. 
that pressure, that anxiety. Jesus was there. Why? Because he was facing the judgment of sin and the sorrow. And the one thing that he has never experienced, ever, was his father judging him and turning his back on him because of sin. We're told in, in Scripture that Jesus became sin who knew no sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. At one point in time, the Father's wrath would be put upon Him. And the thought of that was so grievous to Him. But He said, Father, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but Your will be done. Jesus, as the text says, learned obedience. He learned not to quit but to give himself over to the will of the Father and fully trust in him to be that perfect sacrifice. No high priest has ever sacrificed himself to that extent. No human high priest. Only Jesus. Whatever it is that you go through in life, whatever it is that you're going through right now, whatever tragedy that befalls you, You can fall into the hands of Jesus and He knows your suffering. He knows your pain. He knows the angst. We were praying for a young child, a six-week-old child, that had last week had a seizure and went without oxygen for a long period of time. And for three days, this child was breathing, had a heartbeat on a respirator, but there was no brain activity. And then the docs had to come in, and, and two different docs, the way it works is, is one doc will come in and do a brainwave test and declare there's, there's no brain activity, and then another doc will come in and, and do the same thing, and then they have to decide to end that, that life. There's nothing going on that's there that's not viable within that. I don't know what it's like to lose a child. But I do know from testimony from this family and this mother, it is a type of pain and it's a type of grief that no human should ever have to endure, but they did. But they didn't quit. They didn't give up on God to endure. And I know for that mom, and we were praying for that mom, she took all of it and she went to God and she said, Look it, I've lost my child. And God would say, I know. I gave up my son. And I know that kind of pain. But there's hope. I know that child is with the Lord. She knows that child is with the Lord. She knows that there is life in Christ. God gave over everything so that Jesus would be the perfect high priest for us. So he would know. So please... Please, don't ever get to a place where you stop talking to God about what's going on. Because He, above anyone else, knows. And He will bring a peace to you as your high priest. That's why He is better than any human pastor, preacher, teacher, or religious system within that. Finally, He says, based on this, one of the things that's important to do is not giving up is grow in your faith. Look at verses 11 to 14. Now concerning him, we have much to say. Who? This high priest, Melchizedek. But it's hard to explain since since you have been 
No, become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principle and the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The writer, as he writes to these Jewish Christians, now has a rebuke. He says, look it. You've been in the faith long enough. And out of anybody, you as Jewish Christians should know more than any Gentile Christian about this promise of this high priest, about Melchizedek. And I'd want to teach you the deeper things, but guess what? You become dull of hearing. Are there times in our lives where we become spiritually dull of hearing? Sure. Yeah. How is it that we become dull of hearing? How do we get to this place and we have to be corrected? Where the writer says, I'd like to teach you more, but I've got to take you back to the ABCs. How is it? Because we stop giving ourselves over to the exercise of faith and truth. He'd like to go deeper in the, in the things of Melchizedek and this high priesthood, but trying to talk to them would, would be like trying to explain Calvinism and Arminianism to a three-year-old. Not going to work. We're going to sit them down in the classroom and we're going to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. We're not going to ask him, are you a five-point or a three-point Calvinist or whatever? No. These Jewish Christians had the law. They had the, the knowledge of the law. They had the knowledge of being born again. They had all these things, but they became dull of hearing. Why? Because they slipped back into their old ways. One of the characteristics that will make you dull of hearing is carnality. Paul would write this to the church of Corinth. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink and solid food, but you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able to, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, and you are not fleshy, are you not walking like mere men? In other words, carnality, when we start practicing the things of the flesh... Our ears become spiritually dull. We become dull of hearing. Can you live in the flesh, fulfill the needs of the flesh, and at the same time live 100% for God? No. You can't. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and the world. You have to choose. But when carnality creeps in and our flesh creeps in, our ears shut off. When we start disobeying, we start getting to these places where we're feeding our flesh and not our spirit. And if, and if you're feeding your flesh, you're not feeding your spirit and you become spiritually weak. Why is it that, that so many times we tell you, you need to be in God's Word? You've got a brand new year. Start reading the Bible. Read the Bible in a year. Why? Because it is going to feed your spirit. You're going to exercise your faith within that. You know what the average church attendance is of a person that says, I'm a regular church, church goer? One time a month. One time a month. Are you, are you go to church? Yeah. 
Regularly? Yeah. How often? Once a month. That doesn't work. What would happen if you only breathe air once a day? Would that work? What if you only had a meal once a week? Would that work? No. We, we look at this and, and, and we think in our mind that we can not feed our spirit, but we have no problem feeding our flesh, do we? No, we, we, we feed that flesh multiple times, lots of different ways within this. I've heard some people say, yeah, I've been a Christian for 30 years. I can tell you this, time does not equal maturity. I know a guy that I've been discipling and working with that has been a Christian less than, I would say, less than nine months. Coming up on maybe closer to a year now. That guy knows more Bible than some Christians that I know that have been Christians for 20 years. Eat, sleep, and drink it. Why? Because it is the exercising of that faith. Spiritual maturity comes from spiritual exercise and spiritual activity. Plain and simple. You've got to work out those spiritual muscles in, in, within that word. And the writer here says, I would love to teach you deeper things, but you'll choke on them. You know, I, I've got a brand new grandbaby. You've seen me carry her around, Hallie. Carry her around. I love that kid. And she's almost going to be eight months. I can brag on her a little bit. And, and, and she loves her grandpa. And I, I love giving her things that she's never had before because she makes these puckery faces and just shivers. It's so much fun. My daughter doesn't like it so much, though. She's learning how to eat, though. Now, if I would cut up a nice filet mignon and say, Hallie, I've got this filet for you. Here you go. Bacon wrap. Perfectly medium rare. Nice thick piece. Hot off the grill. Y'all are hungry now. And gave it to Hallie, who has barely one tooth. How long? That's not going to go well. So she'll cut. So what do we give her? We give her mush. I fed her tonight. I tasted it. No wonder she doesn't like the food. It's horrible. The writer says, I want to teach you meatier things, but you're still on the milk. We need to get to that place where we mature. And the greatest way to mature is to study God's Word. He says, by now, some of you should be teachers. But you've got to be taught. By now, you should be mature enough. You want to know the best way to mature in your faith? I'll tell you this. The best way. Fastest way. Best way to mature in your faith. Study God's Word. And then give it back out. Study God's word. Give it back out. Go down to the Sunday school. Go to Awanas. And start taking the simple things and explain them to kids. And you say, well, how is that going to make me mature? One, you're studying. Secondly, you're taking it in. Parsing it. And then you're giving it back out. And I've had people say, oh, I, care, I can't do this. What if they ask me a question I don't know? They're five. <laughs> if a five-year-old can stump you, we got a problem. We, yeah, you got to study some more. 
within this. How are we ever going to fulfill the mandate in Matthew 28, 19? Go therefore and what? Make disciples, learners of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Was that mandate only given just to pastors? No, it was given to everybody. Go make disciples. If you go, you start out as a disciple or learner. You go, you become an apostle. One who is sent with a mission. That's what the word apostle means. Apostello, it means sent with a mission. Go with a mission. You all should be teaching somebody. If it's your grandkids, if it's a kid in Sunday school, if it's a co-worker, a friend, a spouse, you should study and share within that. And you will exercise those spiritual muscles. And within that, we need to understand that that spiritual maturity comes with this, this comprehension of being able to give out what we, we have already received. But the problem is, there's a lot of people that don't do that. And verses 13 and 14 says this, For everyone who partakes of the milk only, not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid word is for the mature, and the practice have their senses trained, note, to discern good and evil. Question. Why is there so much bad theology in churches today? And there is. Why is there so much bad theology in churches? Because they're departing from the teaching of the Word of God. If they are not maturing and they become dull of hearing of the Holy Spirit and they're not studying God's Word, they're going to come up with all kinds of whacked theology. And these spiritual leaders that profess themselves to be wise and mature really are immature fools. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 22 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, for since creation of the world is invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Note, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Can you think of churches that are doing that? I can say yes. Churches that are creating the great apostasy of turning their back on the truth of God's word. That's giving in to social gospel that is leaning out to places that they never should go, professing themselves to be wise. I'm a pastor, I'm a teacher, I graduated from seminary, and I'm teaching a gospel that says, you can be whatever you want to be. You can identify for whatever you want to be. If you identify as a giraffe, I'll accept that. Because that's the most loving thing to do. No. No. 
If you want to practice this lifestyle that God clearly says is sin, I'll accept that. Because I'm mature. No, you're not. You're immature and you don't know the Word of God. They suppress the truth for the sake of social acceptance. Within this, how do you know you're mature? You want to know how you know you're mature? You're mature enough to see evil and stay out of evil. That's how you know you're mature. We think about those that are immature. If I took that same granddaughter and I put her out in my yard that was full of dirt clods and dog poop, do you think she's mature enough to know the difference between a dirt clog and a dog poop? Nope. And then my daughter's going to be mad at me. We have to understand that spiritual maturity means that you have the capacity to recognize evil and saying, I will not go there. Because the truth of God's word says that is sin, I should not go there. And I know that is a hard message that not a lot of people are, are, are sharing. And for some it may be offensive. But as we're going to study on Sunday, truth matters. Because people are dying and going to hell because we're telling them what they want to hear as opposed to what they need to hear. We need to give people the truth and the truth of God's Word. And to stay out of evil, you have to be mature enough to know the difference between good and evil. And to keep people out of evil, you have to be mature enough to tell people that's evil. And that's the difference within it. I'll leave you with this, and then we're going to spend some time worshiping through communion. Second Peter chapter 3, 17-18. This is Peter's benediction in the second letter that he wrote to the, to the churches in general. He says this, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of the undisciplined, unprincipled, I'm sorry, of the unprincipled men, and fall away from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Let's pray. God, we thank You that we can come before You and, and hear from Your Word. God, I pray that we would take heed to this lesson in Hebrews, that we would not turn away from that which is perfect and embrace the imperfect. That we would not lean to our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you and that we would recognize you, Lord Jesus, as the only way, the high priest. You made the way to the throne of grace through your blood, through your sacrificial death. May we be on guard and not carried away by the errors of unprincipled people, as Peter warns us, but remain steadfast. Just as you were steadfast, Lord Jesus, to the cross. Tempted in every way, but you refused to disobey your Father. May we follow that example. I thank you for this time that we can worship you now through communion. Remembering you, Lord Jesus, you said the night before you died to take this bread and eat it. That it reminds us of your body broken for us. And as often as we do this, we remember you. In the same way you took the cup, you blessed it. And you gave thanks for it and, and said, take this cup. It represents the new covenant of your blood. 
and as often as we drink it, to remember you. That wasn't a suggestion, Lord Jesus. You gave us that command, and we want to be obedient to that command. So now, Lord, we want to worship you through communion, to think about the great grace that is afforded to us that we have full access to. You're invited, as we sing this worship song, to come up to the table and and take a piece of the bread, take a cup, and you can return to your seat. And then we'll take communion at the end together. This table is open to anybody who names the name of Jesus Lord and Savior. You're free to be able to come to this table because we received it freely from Christ. Who shouldn't take this table? Well, first of all, those that don't recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior. Second, those that are living in disobedience. Why would you celebrate forgiveness of sins if you're not happy about having your sins forgiven? It's not a ritual. It's out of relationship. Communion doesn't save you. Communion reminds you of all the blessings of salvation given to you. God, we thank you for these these elements. And Lord, we pray for those in this room and online that we can worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. You heard him broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin. Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Behind your regrets and mistakes Come today, there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling Bring sorrows and trade them for joy From the ashes a new life is born Jesus is calling Hallelujah, Christ is risen.
Let's all stand before the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our high priest. We would be lost forever had you not come and found us. We would be hopeless had you not opened that door unto eternal life. We would be destined to judgment and wrath for all eternity had you not paid the price for our sins. And it's with this bread that we acknowledge the fact that, Lord Jesus, on that cross, you paid the penalty for our sin. And on that cross, you gave your life in our stead. And on that cross, you were the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. And all that put their faith and trust in you have been blessed and benefited from that. Out of obedience, we lift this bread up before you. Ask for your blessing upon it. And Lord, help us to remember the blessed hope that we have that was given to us at Calvary. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's receive the bread. Lord Jesus, we hold this cup up before you. We ask for your blessing upon it. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been in that room over 2,000 years ago. To sit at that table and have you raise that glass. And say that this cup, this third cup of the Passover, the cup of redemption, is given to us to remind us of a new covenant relationship. And as often as we drink it, we remember you. And then later that night, And into the next day, blood would begin flowing from your body. It's a blood that cleanses us of all sin. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that we stand before a holy God right now in His throne room of grace, blessed and forgiven, pure because of what you did, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this cup and what it reminds us of. And as we take it, may we remember all the, the blessing that we have being called a child of God and never turn back to the world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's all drink from the cup. Thank you, Lord. We'll close with this last song about how amazing God's grace is for us.
Jesus, we will spend eternity contemplating of how great your grace is. To be able to be in your throne room of grace, to be able to see you face to face as the lamb that was slain, and then be wrapped up in those loving arms. We look forward to that time. But till then, may we continue to grow in the faith and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ turning away from the things of old and embracing the things that you have set before us as new and honor you with everything that we do in our life and make you smile. We praise you and we thank you for our time in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Have a blessed week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.